Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 275. Today's big Bible question is, how did Jesus become a curse for us? So happy Lord's Day to you, dear friends. This Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific on Facebook Live, I'll be teaching on the power of weakness from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're on Facebook, I'd love to invite you to join us at our church page, which is VBC Salinas. That's Victor Bravo Charlie, VBC Salinas, S-A-L-I-N-A-S. Just drop in and jump on the live stream. Uh, If you like the page, you'll get notifications when we go live. Today's Bible readings are short one chapter because we went ahead and read all of Psalm 78 yesterday, but we will be reading the last words of David today in 2 Samuel 23, as well as Ezekiel 28 and Galatians chapter 3. Now, that 2 Samuel 23 passage has always captured my imagination because it talks about David's mighty men and the 30 warriors who followed him and did amazing exploits. Sadly and kind of startlingly, we find that the murdered Uriah the Hethite was one of the 30 in the last one mentioned in the chapter. He was a great hero who was killed by the unchecked ambition and lust of King David. And the fact that he appears last in the chapter, I think, is yet another reminder of the dangers of unchecked sin in our hearts and the dangers of everybody doing what seemed right in their own eyes. Today we're talking about curses, not bad words, but accursed things and accursed people. So let's read Galatians 3 together and pay attention to all the curse talk, especially the part about how everybody hung on a tree is accursed. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ is public was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then, that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. 
For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the power, the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So the word curse occurs five times in that one little paragraph in this chapter. And the way Paul talks about curses here is absolutely brilliant. First, he challenges any idea of religion or the thought that man can earn their way into God's love and favor with a cannon blast of truth. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Wow, so what does that mean exactly, Paul? Well, he answers that question quite succinctly from Scripture. Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. So this is a serious, serious problem, my friends. Imagine you have a deadly disease, which I guess is a little bit on the nose for us to imagine right now, isn't it? Uh, Imagine this disease is killing you. You go to the doctor and he says, I have the cure. And you say, well, gosh, give it to me. And he hands you this huge stack of papers, uh, several pages long, hundreds of commands written down, and none of the instructions are easy. You look at the doctor in confusion. Oh, what do I do, doc? And the doctor unblinkingly tells you that if you don't do every single thing to perfection on that list of hundreds of hard things to do to perfection, you will die. And you say, well, do I just have to do them once? And he says, no, you have to do them permanently, perfectly for the rest of your life every day. This is the situation we are faced with. So many commands in the Old Testament, and God demands 100% holiness and perfection day to day. So, you know, we're sunk, right? And that's what Paul is saying to us. If you are relying on being a good person to save you, if you are relying on trying to be good to save you, if you're relying on being better than the average person to save you, you're sunk. Worse than being sunk, you're under God's curse. Not fair, I hear you squealing. Nobody could obey all of God's commands perfectly. Well, you're almost right. Almost nobody can obey God's commands perfectly with one big exception, Jesus. He did it perfectly as fully human, showing that it is possible to be 100% righteous so that we are without excuse. Still, it doesn't seem fair, right? Out of billions of people who have lived, only one has lived up to God's standards. How can we possibly do that? And that's exactly what Paul is saying to us. If you are trying to be saved 
and enter eternal life by being good and doing good, good luck because you are accursed. Well, that's terrible news. Thanks for listening to the podcast. See you next time. Uh, Oh, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Stop. Stop the presses. There's more. Speaking of curses, Paul tells us that Jesus became a curse for us. How? Well, he was perfect. He deserved no punishment. He kept that huge, massive list of commands perfectly every day, and yet he was executed by sinners like you and me. Further, he, the perfect and spotless Son of God, was executed by being hung on a tree, a horrible and stigmatic death for a Jewish person, because in that culture, only accursed people were killed like that. So Jesus became accursed because of the way he died, on a tree, hanging on a cross. But he also became accursed because the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. In other words, all of the payment and penalty for my sin, all of the curses that you and I have earned due to our sin was poured out on Jesus. Well, here's Pastor Tim Keller with more on that. It doesn't just say he was cursed. The word says he became a curse. Well, what does that mean? It's enormously strong. It didn't just say he was cursed. He says he became a curse. The only other place we have something like that is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it doesn't just say he was just punished for sin. What does it say? It says God made him be sin. What does it mean to say not just that he was cursed, but he became a curse? Well, here's three things. First of all, it teaches us he was punished. When I say, of course, it means he was punished, it simply means, of course, he actually did get a terrible infliction. It says he was punished for us in our place. But that's not all. It doesn't just say he did get a punishment. It says the curse is a punishment. Secondly, it tells us what the punishment was like and what it actually affected. When you think of the word curse, you have, might be thinking of all these stupid B-grade move, movies in your mind, like The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb or whatever. The curse can be anything, but... This is covenantal language in the Bible. The curse is always the loss of relationship. Now, you know what happened to Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ's curse was not the nails in his hands and his feet. It was the hole in his heart where God used to be. The level of pain in the loss of a relationship completely depends on the level of that relationship. For instance, when an acquaintance says, I hate you, you know, it kind of stings, but it doesn't hurt as badly, though it hurts. But when a friend says, I hate you, it hurts worse. When your best friend says, I hate you, that hurts even worse, but it doesn't hurt as badly as when your parent says, I hurt you. And even that may not hurt as badly as when your spouse says, I hate you. Don't you see? When you get to the relationship of the father and the son, we're way beyond the ability of our imagination to understand how close they were. People are always being devastated by the loss of relationship. Counselors see this in their office pastors see it. If you're just a friend, you know people who have never gotten over rejection. Rejection can be worse than being branded. It can be worse than bamboo shoots under the fingernails. It's far worse. It ruins your life. When it comes to what Jesus experienced on the cross and even before that, you see in Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Christ's Agony, Edwards asked the question, why was Jesus sweating blood in the garden? And Edwards says, probably Jesus sat down. In his whole life, he had this perfect relationship with the Father. He had an incredible prayer life, but he sat down in the garden in his moment of greatest need, and he turned to God, and maybe just maybe hell opened up. He turned to the Father, and where the Father had been, there was nothing. The Father rejected him. The Father cursed him. See now what this means? This is a little hard for us to get into. 
because somebody might be thinking, well, it was just three days. Well, no, it couldn't be. When it says he suffered for us, it must mean he experienced in his heart what we would have experienced in hell forever and ever, having lost God. I've said it before, not me, not Tim Keller. I've said it before, an infinite God can suffer infinitely. And yes, Jesus was fully human, so it did take three days, but he was also fully God. So in that way, he could have suffered fully, fully, fully for my sins and your sins. Even the people here on earth, says Keller, who think they have no God, they have God. They have God everywhere. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. In him all things hold together. When we actually lose God, everything will fall apart forever. Our ability to love, our ability to have joy, everything will fall apart forever. We'll be howling in misery. We'll be total. We'll be hell. Yet none of us had and never will have the relationship with the Father that Jesus had. As a result, what Jesus experienced there, he experienced the loss of the Father. He experienced the curse to its deepest degree. As far as he knew, he was gone forever. He would have felt that way. It would have been a hell infinitely greater than all of our hells together, all of our hells in the whole world put together. Jesus Christ, whenever he talked about the Father, referred to the Father, always called him Father, our Father, my Father, Holy Father, your Father, etc. Only once did he call him God, and it was on the cross when he lost the Father. Now, friends, that's something to ponder to the depths of your being. We can't try hard enough to win the approval of God. But Jesus became a curse for us, taking on the price for our sin to open wide the door into eternal life through him. And praise be unto his name. Let's continue with Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. These are the last words of David. The declaration of David, son of Jesse, the declaration of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob. This is the most delightful of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on spouting grass. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? But all the wicked are like thorns, raked aside. They can never be picked up by hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron in the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned up on the spot. These are the names of David's warriors. Josheb Bashabeth, the Tachimonite, was chief of the officers. He wielded his spear against 800 men that he killed at one time. After him, Eleazar, son of Dodo, son of an Ahoite, was among the three warriors with David when they defied the Philistines. The men of Israel retreated in the place they had gathered for battle, but Eleazar stood his ground and attacked the Philistines until his hand was tired and stuck to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Then the troops came back to him, but only to plunder the dead. After him was Shema, son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had assembled in formation where there was a field full of lentils. The troops fled from the Philistines, but Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field, defended it, and struck down the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. Three of the thirty leading warriors went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam while a company of Philistines was camping in Rephaim Valley. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David was extremely thirsty and said, If only someone would bring me water to drink from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. 
So three of the warriors broke through the Philistine camp and drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. They brought it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. David said, Lord, I would never do such a thing. Is this not the blood of men who risked their lives? So he refused to drink it. Such were such were the exploits of the three warriors. Abishai, Joab's brother and son of Zariah, was leader of the three. He wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them, gaining a reputation among the three. Was he not more honored than the three? He became their commander, even though he did not become one of the three. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was the son of a brave man from Kabzeel, a man of many exploits. Benaiah killed two sons of Ariel of Moab, and he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He also killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Even though the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and then killed him with his own spear. These were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who had a reputation among the three warriors. He was the most honored of the thirty, but he did not become one of the three. David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Among the thirty were Joab's brother Asahel, Elhanan, son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema the Herodite, Elka, Elika the Herodite, Helez the Paltite, Iris, son of Ikish the Tekoite, Abiezer the An- Anatholite, Mebani the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai the Nedophathite, Heleb son of Bana the Nedophathite, Itai son of Ribal, Rabbi from Gibeah of the Benjaminites, Benaiah the Parathonite, Hidai from the wadis of Gash, Abi Alban the Arbathite, Asmavath the Barhumite, Eliaba the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan son of Shema the Hararite, Ahim son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphelet son of Ahashbai, son of Machathite, Eliam son of Ahithophel the Gilanite, Hezro the Carmelite, Parai the Arbite, Igal son of Nathan from Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Naharai the Berethite, the armor-bearer for Joab son of Zariah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hethite. There were 37 in all. And sorry guys, I'm sure I butchered some of your names. We continue with Ezekiel chapter 30 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, This is what the Lord God says. Wail, woe, because of that day, for a day is near. A day belonging to the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come against Egypt, and there will be anguish and cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, and its wealth is taken away, and its foundations are demolished, cush, put, and lewd, and all the various foreign troops, plus Libya and the men of the covenant land, will fall by the sword along with them. This is what the Lord says. Those who support Egypt will fall, and its proud strength will collapse. From Migdal to Syene, they will fall within it by the sword. This is the declaration of the Lord God. They will be desolate among the desolate lands, and their cities will lie among ruined cities. They will know that I am the Lord when I set fire to Egypt, and all its allies are shattered. On that day, messengers will go out from me in ships and to terrify confident Cush. Anguish will come over them on the day of Egypt's doom, for indeed it is coming. This is what the Lord God says, I will put an end to the hordes of Egypt by the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He, along with his people, ruthless men from the nations, will be brought in to destroy the land. They will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. 
I will make the streams dry and sell the land to evil men. I will bring desolation on the land and everything in it. By the hands of foreigners, I, the Lord, have spoken. This is what the Lord God says. I will destroy the worthless idols and put an end to the false gods in Memphis. There will no longer be a prince from the land of Egypt, and I will instill fear in that land. I will make Paros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgments on Thebes. I will pour out my wrath on Pelusium, the stronghold of Egypt, and will wipe out the hordes of Thebes. I will set fire to Egypt. Pelusium will writhe in anguish. Thebes will be breached, and Memphis will face foes in broad daylight. The young men of On and Pi Beseth will fall by the sword, and those cities will go into captivity. The day will be dark in Tehapons when I break the yoke of Egypt there and its proud strength comes to an end in the city. A cloud will cover Tehapons and its surrounding villages will go into captivity. So I will execute judgments against Egypt and they will know that I am the Lord. In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look, it has not been bandaged. No medicine has been applied and no splint put on it to bandage it so that it can grow strong enough to handle a sword. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break his arms, both the strong one and the one already broken, and will make the sword fall from his hand. I will disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them among the countries. I will strengthen the arms of Babylon's king and place my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and he will groan before him as a mortally wounded man. I will strengthen the arms of Babylon's king, but Pharaoh's arms will fall. They will know that I am the Lord when I place my sword in the hand of Babylon's king, and he wields it against the land of Egypt. When I disperse the Egyptians among the nations and scatter them among the countries, they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. He is the Lord. Good day to you, friends. May the Lord bless you on this Lord's day. Godspeed.